Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello everyone and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, episode 14, Pirates from the North. Last time, we got to the end of the reign of Egbert of Wessex in 839. It was a reign which had transformed the political map of England. With the emergence of a greater Wessex, comprised of all the kingdoms south of the Thames, with Wessex recognised as overlord of the still-powerful Mercian kingdom, East Anglia and Essex. Quite possibly Northumbria too, though as far as Northumbria is concerned, more in name than practical reality. Despite the dramatic downfall of Mercia from her by now well-established supremacy, in many ways the fundamentals stayed exactly the same. It's probably true to say that Kent and Sussex no longer really exist as independent political entities, 
but was still really in a period of the heptarchy, and England divided into multiple kingdoms. But now into this world was to come a visceral, seemingly unstoppable force that would change the game completely and forever. To sweep away many of the certainties to which the Anglo-Saxons had become familiar, which were seemingly unchanging. The interplay of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, the Christian religion. The only real external enemies being the British of Wales in the west and the Picts and Scots in the north. The cards were soon to be thrown up into the air with a chaos and ferocity reminiscent of the 5th and 6th centuries. I speak, of course, of the Vikings. Now, as a young lad reading all sorts of myths, there were none anywhere remotely as cool as the Norse ones. And while being a big supporter of the Anglo-Saxons, it was impossible not to be fascinated by the Vikings for their pure aggression, vitality and enterprise, quite apart from the coolness of their names, of course. Of course, these days, in the finest tradition of revisionism, there's a wider understanding of the Vikings, their sagas, their art, their talent for metalworking and mastery of trade. I do remember a review of my original episode, which still makes me laugh. Essentially, the bloke said, I mentioned that the Vikings were not just about war, they were about trade and art too, then spent the next year talking about nothing but war axes and the Blood Eagle, and never mentioning any peaceful arts at all. It's a fair cop, Gov. I doubt I will be any better this time round, to be honest. And anyway, I swear I am not alone in that. It's also worth noting that the Irish, the Northern French, the Scots and English of the 9th century, and to some degree the Slavs in the East, were not interested in any of that stuff either. All they knew that their very survival was under threat by a people whose brutality terrified them. And for the Anglo-Saxons, of course, the raiders had become the raided. So before we look at England and what happens there, let's have a look at who the Vikings were, why they arrived on the shore of England, and then give grovelling apologies to their finer feelings. Now then, where to start? Let us start with the word itself, Viking. And just as I say that, I can feel nostalgia creeping all over me for the weekly word, which I did for a few episodes and abandoned because it's super complicated, ladies and gentlemen, super complicated. Now, it might seem obvious, so the word for sea warrior is vikinger in old Scandinavian. High five, fist pump, nailed it, running in little circles, all that sort of thing. It's a rap. But it's not that simple, because when you ask what the origin of that word is, that's much more complicated, and there's no evidence for the word's existence before the 10th century. So how can the word Viking have derived from that? So that's bad. Right, so now you start looking for other roots, and there are plenty of potential other roots for the word. Vic, for example, was originally the word for a bay or inlet. The same word in German means harbour, so that sounds great. These Vikings spent their lives in inlets and harbours, often to the more than mild irritation of the inhabitants. Or, Viken is an area on the Oslo Fjord. Maybe the original raiders bought homes there or there's some other association. But the Oxford English Dictionary goes, tentatively, like a blind man in the desert reaching out to the sound of water, for the explanation that actually the word is an Anglo-Frisian word, because that's where it first appears in the word vikingskader, which probably derives from an old English word for camp, a feature of Viking raids. Then, it was later accepted as a Scandinavian word, which the Vikings themselves start to use from the 10th century. 
The name also seems to be used as a verb, meaning to go on an expedition, as in to go Viking. Hey, Olaf, fancy going Viking next week, that sort of thing. Which sounds like a rather nice thing, like a summer picnic. The expedition might be for mm, a number of reasons. Trade, for example, poetry reading, flower arranging. Though more likely burning, pillaging, killing and stealing. Either way, when all said and done, the fat lady is singing and the ball is in the back of the net, essentially Vikings came to mean hairy pirate from over there who will separate you from all your worldly goods and indeed life if you give him half a chance. Though he might also be sensitive in his spare time and do some nice metalworking. Next thing is that we tend to talk about Vikings as referring to one homogenous group. Now, this is not as bad as using the word English to cover everyone from the British Isles. That way leads to instant evisceration from anyone except an Englishman. And even worse, from us English, you get indulgent condescension. But Vikings came from at least three broad groups, the Swedes, Danes and Norwegians. And they each have very different situations. And although if you're getting an axe in your face, the outcome is broadly similar, their histories are very significantly different. It's useful to start by looking at the map on the website. You will notice something immediately. Firstly, they are quite a long way up the map, where it will be chilly and super cold in the long winters. Life will be hard. Secondly, you'll notice that the Swedes face definitively eastwards, towards and into the Baltic and the lands of the Slavs further east. You'll notice that Denmark sits slap bang in the middle of the passage between the Atlantic and the Baltic, no way of getting through if the Danes are not your buddies. And also that, of course, they are connected to mainland Europe, where, to their south, sits the Carolingian Empire. And then Norway, which originates quite literally from the phrase the way north, along the long coast of Atlantic Scandinavia. Norway has, for much of it, very little hinterland, and faces entirely into the Atlantic towards Iceland, the British Isles, Greenland and even Newfoundland. And actually, these simple facts will have an impact. The Norwegians will go to Ireland and Scotland. For the first century at least, the vast majority of England's contact was with the Danes. Those guys are the ones causing us all the trouble. However, of course, although their position affected where they went, the common characteristics are very much stronger than the differences. Before adding raiding to their CVs, most Scandinavians, of course, made their living from farming. Each household had a single longhouse, separated by a solid wall. On one side of the wall was a hearth, on the other were the animals. Generally in Sweden and Denmark there was more potential for cereal crops, but even in Norway we find barley, oats and rye. And then there was hemp, flax and woad for making clothes. But it would have been the livestock that drove the annual cycle, with often the animals being taken away to the high pastures in the summer, only to return as the weather closed in. But more critically than anywhere in Western Europe, they fished, they hunted and they trapped. And they used the proceeds not just to eat, but to create other tradable goods, things like walrus skin ropes or selling hides in trade. Whatever they did, life was hard. Only half their children would make it to the age of ten, and disaster was constantly round the corner. Margins were thinner than Mr Creosote's after-dinner mint. The demands of the country they lived in meant they also had another super skill, with which only the Frisians could compete. The Frisians, by the way, occupied that region we now call the Low Countries, also very coastal. Anyway, this super skill was boat building. 
With all that coast, they needed boats for mobility and trade and to live and to fish. A boat just wasn't a luxury. Now, they were lucky in that they lived in a good place for the raw materials, plenty of hardwood around. They had access to bog iron, which they knew how to smelt and make into woodworking tools, nails and rivets. They had hemp and skins, which they used for rope and rigging. The result was that by the early 8th century they possessed the most extraordinarily sophisticated boats. These boats had very strong hulls, which could take a beating in the North Atlantic, but they also had very shallow drafts, allowing them to easy access along rivers. So two inventions came along, which made these boats into world beaters. The first was the sail. Until that point, these were rowing boats only but increasingly contact with Frisian and Frankish traders introduced them to the technology of the sail, a technology they enthusiastically adopted. The other was the keel, the long spine running along the length of the vessel which transformed its seaworthiness with strength, stability and control. In fact, the word keel comes from a Norse word, as indeed does the word starboard, incidentally, which is a corruption of the Norse word for steering board, effectively their rudder. The demands of the country they lived in meant they also had another super skill, with which only the Frisians could compete. The Frisians, by the way, occupied that region we now call the Low Countries. This super skill was boat building. With all that coast, they needed boats for mobility and trade and to live and to fish. A boat just wasn't a luxury. Now they were lucky in that they lived in a good place for the raw materials, There was plenty of hardwood. They had access to bog iron which they knew how to smelt and make into woodworking tools, nails and rivets. They had hemp and skins which they used for rope and rigging. The result was that by the early 8th century they possessed the most extraordinarily sophisticated boats. These boats had very strong hulls which could take a beating in the North Atlantic but also had very shallow drafts allowing them to easy access along rivers. And then, two inventions came along which made these boats world beaters. The first was the sail. Until this point, these had been purely rowing boats. But increasing contact with the Frisian and Frankish traders introduced them to the technology of the sail, a technology they enthusiastically adopted. The other thing was the keel, that long spine running the length of the vessel which transformed its seaworthiness with strength, stability and control. And in fact, the word keel comes from a Norse word. As indeed does the word starboard, incidentally, which is a corruption of the Norse word for steering board, effectively their rudder. So put all that together, and by the mid-8th century the Scandinavians have a piece of super technology, a competitive advantage over other nations. Their boats were oared, for speed and manoeuvrability. They had masts, steering boards and keels, so they could sail across the open oceans, but they were shallow drafted, so they could easily be beached for beach markets or they could sail up rivers. And they were light, so they could even be dragged out of the river and carried over dry land for short distances. It also has to be said that they are stunningly beautiful things, as I think most things are when they're perfectly designed for their function. So, take me for example, fat, smelly and hairy, perfectly designed for a life in podcasting. But amazingly, some of these boats were even more beautiful than I am. 
Take the Osberg ship, for example, which is from around 800. It's wide and sleek. Or the rather later Godstadt ship. These are survivals which help us understand at once how beautiful and how terrifying they must have seemed to the folks at the other end of them. They've also inspired people to try them out in replicas. A replica of the Godstadt boat, for example, crossed the Atlantic in 1890. So we know they really work, and Leif Erikson really could have got to Newfoundland. It's also worth noting that there were a variety of different types of boat, the most famous being the longship or drakkar. This means dragon boat, named by the English after decoration at prow and rear, and these were mainly built for war. The burial ship at Sutton Hoo from 7th century East Anglia is built to a similar design. But there were others, like broader-keeled vessels called knars, built for trade. These are two things I want to communicate then. Firstly, these are an incredibly resourceful people, hacking out a life on the margins through the use of a wide range of skills. The second is that partly through luck and partly through exactly this resourcefulness, they are in possession of something special, a piece of super technology. Now, for a while, the Scandinavians used their super technology in peaceful ways. Ah, this is great, they said to themselves. We can now sail and row easily up and down and take our goods to beach markets that spring up from time to time and to the bigger, more permanent trading centres. As trade quickened, they began to sit in the centre of a substantial and complicated trading network, connecting the Baltic and the lands that would become Russia one day with the markets of Western Europe and the Empire. Now, King Alfred of Wessex, Alfred the Great, was an eclectic, curious sort of chap, and in the later 8th century, a Norwegian called Ottar dropped in for a cuppa and told him about his life and how he worked all this system. Ottar travelled to the Baltic and the East and took either tribute or payment from the skins of herds, bird feathers and whalebone, and in ships ropes which are made from the hides of whales and seals. Each one pays according to his rank. The noblest must pay ten martin skins, five whales and one bear skin, ten measures of feathers and a bear or an otter skin coat, and two ships ropes. Really can't do a Scandinavian accent. Anyway, whether gained by violence and tribute, like otter, or trade, these they then took to the growing towns of Charlemagne's empire, where they could see its growing wealth. And equally, there grew up in Scandinavia increasingly large centres where this trade was gathered and redistributed and the wealth returns, like Reba and Hedeby in Denmark and Berka in Sweden. Well, this is great. But of course, around the end of the 8th century, some bright spark had a better idea. Hey, why not use it to kill, maim, destroy, steal, rape and pillage other civilizations, and by so doing, bring them to their knees and make us rich? Before we get on to what then happened once the spark had sparked, it might be good to also look at why they did what they did. And this, in technical, historical parlance, and so sorry to use complex technical terms you probably don't understand, is a bit of a poser. There are various arguments which have traditionally been used. One was beloved by Christians of the time and has remained popular. These are pagan barbarians, constrained by no proper moral code. So it's not surprising they decided to live off the toil of good, honest Christians. 
Now, this is an interesting argument and point of view, and indeed I would love to speak to a Viking and understand what their reasoning and justification was for all the slaughter. But, of course, it's difficult to accept this as an explanation. Firstly, because Christians were every bit as capable of doing all these things themselves. It's just that they got a guy with a big brain called Augustine of Hippo to create a moral framework of just war around the thing. I'm being unnecessarily cynical, but nonetheless... The difference between pagan and Christian doesn't seem to explain it. Secondly, there's a theory that it's overpopulation. The argument goes that there was not enough land and food, so they went in search of more. The trouble with this is that there's no proof of famine or pressure on land, and there was an unexploited hinterland in Sweden and Denmark at least, which would surely have been easier than travelling over the seas in an open boat to go to war. There's another theory, a bit like me going to the house of a particularly well-heeled family. So, I remember as a relatively small child being taken to the house of a relative who had a particularly fine garden which seemed to attract a range of interesting species of birds I had not seen at my own very comfortable house. I immediately wanted this house and I wanted to live there with no thought of what my parents might think or family or any such like. I saw it and I wanted it. The point of this rather torturous and indeed feeble analogy is that as they traded with the Christian Empire, the Vikings saw far greater wealth and luxury than they had or would ever be likely to have. And so they thought they should take some for themselves. Silly not to. And then there's a capability argument, or at least there ought to be. One of the technology changes, the sale, came about in the middle of the 8th century. So maybe that just opened things up and gave them the opportunity to go Viking that they hadn't had before. There is then a political argument. One of the nuttier theories is that it is a revenge thing. In the late 8th century, the great Charles the Great, Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Emperor, made war on pagan Saxons in northern Germany and violently brought them to Christ. The argument goes that the pagan Vikings set out in revenge to kill Christians. I really can't credit this. Plus, of course, they went to the British Isles as much as anywhere, or indeed as much as they did to the Holy Roman Empire, so that seems a bit daft. But there are better political arguments. One is that Charlemagne tackles the Frisian pirates that are giving his own merchants so much grief, and brings them under control. But unfortunately, this has the unintended consequence of weakening the very people who have in fact been holding back the Vikings. The Frisians were themselves powerful sailors who had held sway over the Atlantic. In 809, a Danish king called Godfred descended on Frisia with a massive fleet of 200 ships and tore what remained to pieces. Pirates continued to operate from Frisia nonetheless, but as a force in the North Sea after both Charlemagne and Godfred have had a go at them, they are in no position to compete with the Vikings. The mention of Godfred then brings me on to another political argument. Basically, in Denmark at least, Godfred represented a central unifying authority, king of all the Danes in theory at least, who could to a degree control his people. It's interesting that the first two raids on the English coast at the end of the 8th century are Norwegian, not Danes. Godfred and Chardemagne have arguments and so on, but essentially it's not in Godfred's interest to have his people acting as freebooters and messing up his diplomatic measures. Godfred was killed by one of his own followers and Charlemagne died in 814. 
but their successors, Horik and Louis the Pious, go on offering both a degree at least of central control and diplomatic discussion, or if not discussion, interference. Louis in particular was quite capable of encouraging branches of the Danish royal families to rebel and keep Denmark weak. But when Horik died in 854, there was no one to deal with in Denmark. And Louis the Pious had died in 840, and the empire had then split into three anyway, so there was no one strong enough to do what Charlemagne and Louis had done. And so, QED, the result is an explosion. It's notable that the manner of raids by the Danes on England changes very much in the 860s. Before then, raids are smaller and individual, and may be driven by, I don't know, expelled notables who lost out in the Danish political struggles. But in the 860s, a massive army, a Michauhira, arrives to stay. And maybe that's because all restraint of Danes is gone. But the Michauhira is for another episode. So to summarise, in time-honoured, fence-sitting fashion, it seems there's likely to be multiple reasons. Population pressure, the opportunity, the political situation. It may well be different for each group too. So for the Norwegians on their rocky coastline, overpopulation and fear of imminent death seem like super plausible explanations. Along with that, look at that shiny thing they've got, I want that now. For the Swedes, their impetus is mainly trade anyway, and they are simply initially at least pulled by profit. For the Danes, it's a slow start until the political gloves come off and they can live up to their true potential for mayhem. Oakley Doakley, that's the whys, and never mind the wherefores at the moment. I mentioned that these three groups, Norwegians, Swedes, Danes, do different things. So what's that then? To start with the Swedes, they go east, young man, into the lands of the Baltic and eastwards into what they can now call Russia. For the most part, as they access deep into the interior, they find societies no more organised and politicised than themselves, dark, vast forests hunters and gatherers. So there's little point in conquest. They haven't got anything shiny to take. It's trade, trade for those furs and skins and so on that Ottar mentioned earlier. And so they set up trading posts. Tradition then goes that a Swedish leader called Rorik became the ruler of an empire based on Kiev. And the Vikings were known to the locals as Rus, hence the later name Russia. So there's a thing. The Swedes travelled deeper and deeper along the rivers all the way down south into the Black Sea and across to the greatest trading prizes of all, Constantinople and indeed even to Baghdad. From Baghdad actually we get a description of our Vikings which is unlike any of the others in that it's a detailed and vivid description, half admiring, half appalled of what they were like. It's written by an Arab in 921 who wanted to reach an agreement with the Bulgars. And while there with the Bulgars, met a people he called the Rusia. It's a little bit later than our period, but we might expect not much had changed. I'll do a few snippets, which are from Neil Oliver's book, The Vikings. I have never seen more perfect physiques than theirs. They are like palm trees, are fair and reddish. The man wears a cloak with which he covers half his body, leaving one of his arms uncovered. Every one of them carries an axe, a sword, a dagger. Each woman has on her breast a small disc tied round her neck, 
made of either iron, silver, copper or gold in relation to her husband's financial and social worth. Okay, going okay so far then. The perfect physique thing is jolly generous. But Ibn Fadlan went on. They are the filthiest of Allah's creatures. They do not wash themselves after excreting or urinating or wash themselves when in a state of ritual impurity and do not even wash their hands after food. They cannot, of course, avoid washing their faces and heads every day, which they do with the filthiest, the most polluted water imaginable. Every day, the slave girl arrives in the morning with a large basin containing water, which she hands to her owner. He washes his hands and face and hair in the water, blows his nose, spits in the basin. There is no filthy impurity he will not do in the water. When he no longer requires it, the slave girl takes the basin to the man beside him and he goes through the same routine as his friend. She continues to carry it from one man to the next until she's gone round everyone in the house. Not so good. More Vikings penetrated all the way down to Constantinople. In 860, Constantinople was subjected to a fleet of 8,000 Vikings threatening to storm the walls. The Vikings weren't good at walls, as it happens, but the tradition grew up then of the Varangian Guard, a group of Vikings fighting for the Byzantine Emperor as his personal guard, whose most famous member was to be Harald Hadrada in the 11th century. It was the Norwegians, meanwhile, who may have been the first off the blocks, though. Their route brought them initially to the very tippy-top of Scotland, to the Shetlands and Orkneys, a group of islands that was just a couple of days across open water. The debate then goes on about whether they join with the local Pictish population or wipe it out, but either way, the Shetlands and the Orkneys become critical staging points on their further travels. Those travels take them in the early 9th century all the way round to western Scotland and Ireland, where monasteries, and particularly the monastery of Iona, until, in the 830s, Viking ships begin to penetrate further inland in Ireland, and in the 840s they begin to stay, founding towns such as Dublin, Limerick, Waterford. Norwegians do visit England, but not very much. The first couple of raids on England in Dorset, Devon in the southwest, and of course Lindisfarne in the northeast, are Norwegian, as it happens. The ones in Devon and Dorset quite possibly were secondary raids from Ireland. But thereafter, until the 10th century, the Norwegians are concentrated on Ireland and Scotland. And so it is the Danes who will very kindly come to call on us English. On behalf of all the Anglo-Saxons of England, could I just take this opportunity to say thanks. Thank you, really. The Danes also caused havoc in Normandy and northern France. In the late 9th and early 10th century, this led the Frankish kings to desperation, once besieged in Paris by a Viking argument that could have numbered 30,000. And so the French king, Charles the Simple, decided to follow the old Roman approach of settling the barbarians in their lands and trying to make them friends rather than enemies. So a Viking leader called Rollo became a vassal of the French king and married his illegitimate daughter. In some ways, this worked. The Vikings quickly became Normans and adopted French customs and Christianity. But as the later history of the Normans show, the spirit of the Vikings lived on, and in other ways it was a disaster. It would be many centuries before Normandy became fully controlled again by the French crown. 
150 years later, the English would also have the cause to curse the French for their generosity. Anyway, we cover this in a special episode later. Something to look forward to. The structure of Viking society was very similar to that of early Anglo-Saxon England, with the lowest being the thrall or slave. Then there was the bondi or carl, i.e. a freeman. And then the jarl, i.e. the noble. The Vikings seemed to follow a pattern of adopting some local traditions of the areas they settled, so in England their laws and organisation are very similar, though recognisably different. It is worth noting that one of the objects of their raiding was indeed to gather slaves for trade. And that tended to go two ways. If you were rich, you had a good chance of being ransomed. If you were poor, that just wasn't an option. And you'd end up in a slave market, taking the British to lands as far away as North Africa, Byzantium, Baghdad. Once they arrived on the English coast and indeed mainland, the Vikings were of course to prove a formidable adversary that the Anglo-Saxons found extremely difficult to deal with. Both were primarily infantry armies whose most common weapon was the spear. There may be three things that gave the Vikings an advantage. The first was speed and mobility, helped by both ships, but also the use of horses as a form of transport. Secondly, they may have been somewhat more disciplined than the Saxons with a greater variety of tactics. So, for example, we hear about the boar, a formation of men designed to break an enemy's line. Shields would have been commonplace, but mail and swords would have been owned by just a few. Thirdly, their famed ferocity. I'm not prepared to believe that all Viking warriors were necessarily more vicious than their opposite number in the Anglo-Saxon ranks, but there is that famous tradition of the berserker. The famous berserks, whose name suggests actually that they wore bearskins, from which the word derives, may have fought in groups, and they believed that Odin, god of war, gave them both protection and superhuman powers, so they had no need of armour. They would work themselves up into a battle frenzy so intense, it is said, that they bit on the edges of their shields and could ignore the pain of wounds. The Vikings were, of course, pagan, Although the Vikings didn't worship in the same sense as Christians, their gods were an ever-present part of their lives, of course. The gods were more powerful than men, but they were not all-powerful or all-knowing, or indeed entirely good. Like men, they ate, fought, played jokes, were deceived on occasion and eventually would die. But the key promise was that those who died in combat got to spend eternity boozing and partying with Odin in Valhalla, which is something of a motivation to have a go. As I've said, the nature of the Viking attacks on England, and indeed everywhere, changed over time. The late 8th century and first half of the 9th mainly saw raiding, smash-and-grab tactics. There's a quote in a 12th century saga that paints a picture of how the typical year in this period might have looked from the Viking side which I thought was really interesting. In the spring, he had more than enough to occupy him, with a great deal of seed to sow, which he saw to carefully himself. When the job was done, he would go off plundering in the Hebrides and Ireland on what he called his spring trip. Then back home, just after midsummer, where he stayed till the cornfields had been reaped and the grain was safely in. After which, he would go off raiding again and never come back till the first month of winter was ended. This he used to call his autumn trip. 
It's a slightly chilling description of the banality of it all. Chaos and destruction fitted in neatly with the turn of the seasons and the household chores. A little light reading, the spring trip. There's another point worth making. These were very independent men. They would find a boat and serve in that for a while. That boat might gather with others to make a larger fleet, or with other fleets to make invasions like the great heathen army of the 860s. What they are not, or rarely in the 9th century, is an invasion force organised by a king. These are a series of private freebooter raids. I think that's enough for now. Let me leave you with the basic message that when we think about the Vikings in England, we need to be very aware that this is not just an English or indeed British phenomenon. The explosive diaspora of Vikings affects the British Isles, France, Russia, all the way down to the Middle East. And it's constant, a seemingly inexhaustible tide of barbarians. As a French monk wrote in the 860s, the number of ships grows. The endless stream of Vikings never ceases to increase. Everywhere the Christians are victim of massacres, burnings, plunderings. The Vikings conquer all in their path, and no one resists them. Next week, then, it's the History of England, episode 197, where we talk about the historiography of Henry VII. Then in two weeks' time, here in Anglo-Saxon England, we'll get back to the narrative, including Vikings, and the first half of the 9th century through the reign of Athelwulf, Alfred the Great's father, amongst other things. Until then, then, everyone, thanks so much to all you donators, thanks to all of you for listening, and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.